Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking with the philosopher Michael Sandel about the case against meritocracy. Why are we so bad at rewarding people for what's really valuable? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Michael, you teach at Harvard. Helen and I teach at the other Cambridge, Cambridge UK. So we both work for elite universities that spend an awful lot of time and an awful lot of money and energy trying to recruit the best students. And maybe this is way into the big themes of your book. And it's almost taken for granted that that's what they should do. There are a lot of arguments about how to do it, but there are very few arguments about whether they should do it. So just tell us why we should think about the whether, not just the how. I think that we should recruit students, David, who can benefit from the teaching and learning we have to offer and who in turn can contribute to that teaching and learning. But beyond that, I think we sometimes overdo it. I'm struck, especially in the U.S. setting, when there are places like Stanford and Harvard that have more than 40,000 applicants for about 2,000 places. And most of them, uh, according to the admissions officers, are well qualified and able to do the work and do it well to flourish at these places. So my suggestion in the book, and it may get me into a lot of trouble in my neighborhood, is to have the admissions office sort out those who are not well qualified who wouldn't flourish in these places. And then among the rest, I don't know, among the 25 or 30,000 left, let's say, to admit the students based on a lottery, a lottery of the qualified. First, I, I doubt that the discussion in my classes would go less well. We could see, we could do an experiment by admitting half the class that way and half in the traditional way, see what happens. But beyond that, I think it's a way of chipping away at the at the intense pressures that these young people are under throughout their their adolescence, really, to equip themselves for this meritocratic gauntlet strewn as it is with pressure and stress and anxiety. It would be a way of reminding students, too, and their parents of the role of luck in these things. So in a way, it's possible the discussion might go better, never mind not going less well. Uh, I think all, it might. For all the reasons you say. Yeah. What do you think? Would you think that your, your classes, would they be impaired or improved by this, do you think? Go on, Helen, you go. I don't think it would, in the Cambridge-Britain context, in the sense of what happened in educationally in terms of 
our experience of teaching and the experience of the, the students in the class make a great deal of difference. The issue really is, is uh, how do you put the claim of that argument, well, which I have a, a lot of time um, for about the importance of luck, and how do you balance it off against an argument that's been very important, certainly in the British context, that higher education has been, at least historically, not going way back, obviously, but for some time, an agent, a supposed agent anyway, of social mobility. And the point being that you're trying to give more opportunities to people who start off with less luck in other respects. For me, that kind of is a, is a question that, that still needs to be asked. I agree. I think that that question could be addressed, and I certainly share the view that that's terribly important and part of our role. That could be addressed alongside the lottery proposal, either by admitting in advance a certain number of students who came, let's say, from families where no one had previously been to university, or by giving first-generation students or students from poor backgrounds extra tickets in the lottery, so to speak, to make it more likely that a good proportion of the class would be made up of students who had overcome real disadvantage. So I don't think we would need to turn our back on that mission while at the same time sending a message about the role of luck. There is an argument that's sometimes put forward. This is another sort of utopian scheme. So in a system like the UK system where it's still assumed, and I think this is an assumption that could also be challenged, that the best students want to go to Oxford and Cambridge. I think there are lots of places they might want to go. But say you had a system where there was one or two elite universities and a certain geographical area, certain schools, certain classes of people dominated mission. So you could just say that every school in the country is allowed to pick its best two students, the, even the biggest, grandest schools and the, the littlest out-of-the-way schools. But that then raises a question that you also address, which is this kind of meritocratic selection, it's obviously bad for the people who are left out. It's quite damaging for the people who are chosen. It's also quite damaging for the choosers, the sorters, because yeah. they're being asked to make these often fine, very consequential decisions, life chance, life fate decisions, for other people. And for me, a big attraction of lottery is that there aren't choosers. I think the choosing is a big part of the problem. And that would even be true under that scheme where every school got to choose its best two students. It would be ultra meritocratic and also possibly quite damaging. Right. Which raises a broader question that I try to take up in the book, David, which is that maybe we also should question the steep hierarchy of prestige and honor and esteem that has been built up in the UK and in the US in higher education to the detriment of educational institutions and forms of learning that operate alongside universities and that most people rely on to prepare themselves for the world of work and for the world of contribution, I'm thinking in the U.S. context, this would be state colleges, two-year community colleges, which often serve first-generation students, and also institutions of vocational and technical training. 
we, and here I'm speaking of the American setting, we woefully underfund these educational institutions. And I think that underfunding partly reflects the steep hierarchy of prestige, the credentialism, as I call it, that has arisen and intensified in recent decades, reflecting the meritocratic way of thinking about success and public life and social recognition and esteem. So even once we sort out the question of how to choose students for Cambridge and Oxford and Stanford and Harvard, there is a much broader question about whether universities of these kinds really should function as arbiters of opportunity, conferring the credentials and defining the merit that the society valorizes, prizes, and places at the top. And I think that's a, that broader question is one that we should reconsider. This is a, is a really important question that gets to the, the heart of the issue in that I think that we would all agree in being quite wary of credentialism. And I think that's a good word to describe what's gone on. But I think then, then there's a, another, if you like, political implication, which we've seen really, I think, quite strongly in this country that became the, the social basis of Corbynism, that going to university became an important credential, but it actually turned out not to be a credential that in the both in the, the job market, but in the broader sense of economic opportunities, including access into home ownership, for instance, did not deliver what credentialism was supposed to deliver. So it seems to me that there's a problem that goes beyond what happens with access to the educational institutions in the first place. And that in order to get away from the credentialism, we've at the same time got to have a a different kind of economy that not only rewards jobs in different ways and they're being rewarded um, at the moment, but at the same time can engage with the sheer material frustration and disappointment of people who've been through the university system as it exists presently. And that then quite quickly gets us into, well, how do we translate what we can see in some senses socially wrong and in some sense I would say morally wrong about our society into actually a different way of economically living? And that seems to me to be a whole other proposition and very, very difficult question. Right. Well, what I propose in the book is shifting the focus of our public discourse and political argument away from what has been the central question of center-right and center-left political parties and politicians in recent decades, which is responding to the deepening inequality we see by offering individual upward mobility through higher education. We were told for decades, really, that the solution to the growing inequalities of income and wealth and esteem was to send more people to university and then to offer them the promise that they they too would be able to rise, to clamber up the ladder of success, even as the rungs were growing further and further apart. I think that solution to inequality, individual upward mobility, has run its course. It doesn't fit the facts on the ground. The US and the UK are actually among, Western democracies are among the countries where 
social mobility one generation to the next is the most difficult, not the least. In many European countries, it's much easier to rise from a poor family to relative affluence one generation to the next than it is in the U.S., despite the fact that we tell ourselves that we are a mobile society. So this project, the rhetoric of rising, as I call it in the book, by 2016, its time was up. It had lost its capacity to inspire. And that raises the question, what, what political project should we seek instead? And it seems to me that what we should do is shift from the rhetoric of rising to a politics that puts as its first question, how can we affirm and renew the dignity of work? And what would that mean? It's easy for us to forget that for all the talk of the, the rhetoric of rising and upward mobility through university attendance, most people don't have a four-year university degree in the U.S. Nearly two-thirds don't. And in terms of university diplomas, the figures are similar in the UK and in most European countries. So it's folly to have created an economy, and this goes to your point, Helen, to have created an economy that sets as a necessary condition of dignified work and a decent life a university diploma. We should focus instead, I think, on how to make life better, more fulfilling for people who contribute important ways to the common good through the work they do, the families they raise, communities they serve, whether or not they're well-credentialed. And so that really does raise a different set of questions about how to reconfigure the economy the better to reward these contributions that often go not only underpaid, but under-recognized and appreciated and esteemed. So related to that, and this is a, a big question about how we structure our economies, there's also an issue about literal mobility. We talked to, on this podcast a while back to Esther Duflo about this and about that assumption in the way that we organize our economies and our societies and and elite universities play a part in this that there are these kinds of hubs of excellence that are also the drivers of economic growth um, that you bring people together bright students tech people restaurateurs theaters parks affordable housing if you can and if you can't whoever can afford it and something is sparked in a in a college town in a city setting and that people will move and they will move on the basis of, if not strictly merit, sort of drive and energy and ability. And that that is the engine of our entire economic system. And it raises the question about all the people who are, to use the phrase that's often used, left behind. But also just about the basic structure of that way of organizing a society, that we, we value that sort of mobility. And it has enormous consequences. And it does, I think, fuel a lot of the things that you describe in your book the things that we don't want, the resentment, everybody in some sense under the system suffers in various ways and you know that there is misery including around the difficulty of affording to live in these hubs of excellence. The unspoken assumption is that where good things happen, good people will want to move to. It's a really hard thing to challenge, but it is at the heart of the problem, isn't it? Well, it's an interesting aspect of the problem of mobility. We typically think about mobility in terms of an individual rising or not. But 
you rightly bring out this other aspect of mobility, which is the invitation or even the demand to to move to places where opportunities are greater. Of course, people should be free to move and to seek opportunities, but people should also be able to flourish in place. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a concept, a way of thinking about creating opportunities diffused throughout a society and an, and an economy that we haven't really focused on. Insofar as place matters, insofar as community matters, to social cohesion, sense of belonging, traditions, families, I think that an economy that asks how people can be enabled to flourish in place is important. And it may be less difficult than it seems or perhaps was in the past, given the role of technology in work, picking up and moving to another city, a so-called center of excellence, may not be so necessary if we think of work as we've been forced to think of it during this pandemic as something that can take place with the help of technology from a great many directions at once. There's a really interesting question here about the place and and mobility issues, and that is about the kind of jobs that this shift, big shift towards credentialism encouraged. So what were the sets of aspirations that people who were going to elite universities and saw themselves as um, being equipped to get on in the world by having these credentials went into. And I think this is obviously a big generalization, but there's a concentration in finance. There's a concentration around law and particularly perhaps the relationship between law and finance, at least in New York and in, in London, the digital Silicon Valley but also a whole set of public sector jobs, including public administration jobs. And that the sense in which there was a space in which people were going to come out of um, universities and go back to where they came from and and form businesses um, of whatever kind, I think is something that that kind of disappeared with this credentialism. Mm -hmm. So I think that what's happened can't really be detached from the ways in which employment has been generated. And I would say in particular, the the role that finance has played, particularly in the American economy and in the the British economy. So a world in which, an economic world, I mean by that, in which the high rewards went to fewer sectors would make this a lot easier as a political project. Having said that, of course, and this is where we get back into the the world as it is, there were structural reasons in Western economies why financial sectors became as as big and significant as they did, and they're not that easy to undo. It's a very interesting observation, Helen. And in the book, I discuss the financialization of the economies in recent decades, running alongside the rise of the, well, the market faith generally, going back to the 80s and continuing into the 2000s. But also, and this is my point of emphasis, the changing attitudes towards success that accompanied the marketization 
the financialization and the deepening inequality that we've seen over the last four decades. The divide between winners and losers has deepened. It's poisoned our politics. It's pulled us apart. And it isn't just the inequality. It also has to do with the tendency of those who land on top to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and by implication, that those who fall behind have no one to blame but themselves. This sense of elites looking down on those less credentialed than themselves, I think, has fueled the anger and the resentment that has been exploited by authoritarian populists, including Trump. And I think part of what's demoralized work for a great many working people is the sense that the contributions they make through the work they do are no longer as appreciated or recognized or respected as they once were. And I think part of this is to do with the inequality generally, the deepening inequality. But I think that the financialization, to get back to your point about finance, the financialization of the economy and the outsized rewards lavished upon those in the financial industry has eaten away at the dignity of work in the ordinary sense. Because people sense, and I think rightly, that much of the financial activity that goes on in Wall Street or in the city, much of it is far detached from the traditional social purpose of finance, which is to allocate capital to socially useful purposes in the real economy new factories and businesses and roads and infrastructure and homes and hospitals and so on. Most people sense that a lot of the financial activity that we see today and that reaps enormous rewards for those engaged in it has very little to contribute to the real economy and instead has to do with essentially bets upon bets fancy derivatives, predictions, essentially futures market, or high-speed trading that reaps millions from a millisecond faster trade. I think even those who don't know the details of speculative finance sense that the gap between what's rewarded and recognized and what really does contribute to the economy and to the common good, that gap has grown. And it's grown in ways that depreciate the contributions of people who, who make and provide valuable goods and services in the real economy. So I think a politics of the dignity of work has to take this on. And it has to include ways of not only changing the system of rewards, including vis-a-vis -vis finance, but also changing the structure of esteem and recognition and valorization even much of which flows to those engaged in finance. This needs to be a part of any debate about how to renew the dignity of work. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What you said there about high-speed trading made me think about another theme, and it connects to the dignity of work, which is automation. It's a, it's a looming theme in our politics. It's going to get bigger. There may be many consequences to an increasingly automated economy. But one thing that could happen, I have no idea if it will, but could happen, and high-speed algorithmic trading is an example of this, if the people at the top believe they are there on merit, but actually they're not trading in nanoseconds, it's a machine that's doing it, and they're just reaping the rewards. You might hope that at some point that sense that their credentials make them better people would be eroded by the possibility of machines doing this kind of work. And a lot of it is the work that the credentialed university graduate does, whether it's in law, whether it's in finance. It's at least possible, I'm not saying it's certain, but it's at least possible that as as automation starts to do more of that, and there's a greater premium on human qualities in employment, the human beings are going to have to do the more human things and leave some of the other stuff up to the machines. We I hope t- you're right about yeah. that, David. I mean, we I tend would to like think to of it think. as do me, but I'm trying to put a positive <laughs> spin on it. There, there is a possible variant on automation that does reward different qualities in human beings that we could call the human qualities, and the high-speed traders get squeezed out. Am I being no. utopian? There, well, I think you're, you're being yes, yes. I can tell by your laugh. Yes, exceedingly hopeful. Well, I'm thinking of. Uh, a class I taught last academic year on tech ethics, and we had in people who are at the cutting edge of these technologies, one of which is called emotional AI, emotional <laughs> artificial <laughs> intelligence, which enables you to program an algorithm to read the emotions of people applying for jobs to determine how suitable they are, and for that matter, to read the emotions of your existing employees to see what kind of job they're doing. So I think they will, I'm afraid, try to design and to some extent already have designed algorithms to deal even with the dimension of human judgment that you and I prize and hope would prevail in the workplace and for that matter in in society generally. I also worry that those who are designing the algorithms and inventing the robots will be the ones to reap the rewards. Mm. Maybe, uh, maybe not the traders themselves who, who reap the fruits of the high-speed trading, but those who set up the algorithms, who design the machines, who lay the fiber optic cable that shaves the nanosecond off the trade, and so on. So I think these distortions, and by distortions I mean these gaps between genuine contribution to the common good and reward. These gaps are really uh, among the afflictions of our modern political economy. And we need a politics. I don't think we can rest our hope that the automation will save us. I think we need to 
recast the terms of public discourse to address these questions head on, which means we need to question an assumption into which all of us easily slide, which is to think that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. This is a mistake, and we can easily see if we reflect for a moment on the kinds of differential rewards that uh, are produced by the labor market. But it's a very easy assumption to make and to slide into time and again, because the alternative is a rather demanding alternative, morally and politically, which is to say, we need to reflect and deliberate and to debate democratically what counts as a truly valuable contribution to the common good. And we need to try to reconfigure the economy to reward, to a greater degree than we do today, the genuine contributions to bring about a better alignment between the contributions people make and the rewards and recognition they receive. That is a demanding moral and political project because it requires that we come to terms with the competing conceptions of the common good that in pluralist societies people subscribe to. So it's a tall order for democracy to debate this. It's easier to outsource this moral judgment to markets, but it's a mistake to do so. And I think that the, the gaping gap between the rewards we currently confer economically and what really counts as a valuable contribution to the common good, that gaping gap needs to be attended to. And that's a political question, not in the end. And I suspect you would agree, David, a technological one. I, I, I do agree. There is a case, and it's come up in the, during the pandemic, that things that are hugely undervalued, including forms of human care, you know, what we might call the, the caring part of the economy, it is possible to see the ways in which the kinds of economies and societies we have, you know, they are sorting roles between ones that can be automated, that are in some sense technical roles, and roles that we have traditionally undervalued that require human interaction to be done well. I still think there's a huge way to go, and, and actually this pandemic has done almost nothing to address it yet. But there is a possibility. I, I heard someone give a talk about a future work environment in the age of automation where more or less everyone will either be working in healthcare or in education, because that's what human beings do in different forms. And a lot of the other stuff will be done by machines. And it's, it's a huge political project to reconfigure a reward system around that. But it is possible that we're heading towards a society where we can start to think about forms of care and what they, the ways in which they should be rewarded. We're not there yet, and we need the politics to do it. I'm not completely doomy about this. I hope, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. It would open up at least some space for the kind of deliberation about contribution that I argue in the book we desperately need. Yeah. I mean, I think that in one sense, though, the difficulty is, is, is that there is a world that was lost for the United States and Britain and for most other European countries, perhaps a little bit less so in, in Germany with the, with the rise in finance. And that was the world of, of manufacturing, industrial manufacturing employment. 
And I think that the idea of wanting, which I am entirely on board with, uh, of the dignity of labour, the thing that we're all nostalgic about, therefore, there though, is something that essentially was given away because these economies decided from the 80s onwards to send manufacturing production to poorer parts of the world, including China. And then if you take an industry in this country that was pretty significant, I think, in terms of both offering reasonable living standards, but also certain dignity, which was coal mining, the coal mines were all closed. And obviously for ecological reasons, environmental reasons, opening coal mines again is not really part of of anybody's political agenda, except it seems to be in in China. So I I think that there's a a structural material change in Western economies that's gone hand in hand with the way in which credentialism and its relationship to finance came to the political fore. And that in in terms of of getting back to more reward to labour, we're looking back to an age that in some sense just simply no longer exists, including the role of trade unions in the wages that those in the industrial employment were able to demand, not least because of their ability to seriously to disrupt economies through strikes. You've touched on a lot of the sources of the predicament Mm. we find ourselves in, Helen, and certainly the demise of trade unions, and this has been even, even more devastating in the US. It's a big part of the story of the erosion of the dignity of work not only uh, thinking of unions negotiating pay and, and working conditions, but also voice, the chance to give workers a meaningful say in shaping the forces that govern our collective life. On the issue of finance, I don't think we need to regard this as inevitable and irreversible. I think it should be a recognition of the damaging effects on the dignity of work of the financialization of our economies can be the starting point for a political debate about contribution. Adair Turner has estimated, and he would be in a position to know, having headed the the UK regulatory authority, he estimated that only 15% of financial activity these days in the US and the UK, only about 15% involves investing in new assets in the real economy. And that 85% consists of speculation or bets on the future prices of already existing assets, or for that matter, invented instruments of various kinds like derivatives. Well, if anything like that, is the case that 85% consists of what one could call speculative activity, not directly related to investment in the real economy. That's a pretty devastating account about the way in which we, we reward this activity. So when I say it's not inevitable, but the starting point for a political argument, I think that under the heading of the dignity of work, We should debate such measures as, for example, wage subsidies for key workers, and we've come to a renewed appreciation of our dependence on the role of key workers during this pandemic, a financial transactions tax of a meaningful kind, not only to raise revenues, but also for its expressive 
significance to indicate that this is an activity that doesn't contribute to the common good in a way that's in proportion to the rewards it generates for those engaged in it. So a financial transactions tax would be another. And then finally, uh, Helen, the issues you mentioned about offshoring and the insistence during the period of neoliberal globalization uh, of uh, capital flows across national boundaries. These raise the question, which is a fundamentally political question, of the status and significance of national borders in political economy, which I know is something that, well, both of you have, have thought a lot about. But what is the relation between the neoliberal globalization project, which included offshoring and the loss of manufacturing jobs in the US and the UK, and unfettered capital flows across borders, what was the lesson, the implicit lesson, the moral teaching, the political teaching of that whole period about the significance of the nation and national belonging and national identity and what we owe one another as citizens? I think part of the anger against elites by many working people or people who live in rural areas outside of, of big cities is that elites during the last four decades, essentially, have cast them aside, have considered that they have more in common with other elites, other professionals, whether in finance or in law, in other countries than they do with their fellow citizens. So while we've been talking about economics and reward and recognition, lurking not far beneath the surface of this discussion is the status of the nation as a source of community, identity, and belonging. M Michael, can I ask you a question that relates to that specifically about the United States? Because as you say, the argument against meritocracy is in part what it does to those who are sorted out, the disdain, the undervaluing of the people who don't pass the test. And then there's the reinforcing among the people who do, many of whom are simply riding their luck, that they deserve it, that their merit is a reflection of their value, even their moral value. And the same thing is true of nations. I mean, the United States is a providential nation. It has a sense of itself as being a force in the world. And that same psychological reflex can be at work at the national level. You know, America is great because America is good. And the rewards flow to the deserving at a, a national level as well as at an individual level. And it's quite hard in democratic politics to challenge that. The, the democratic politician who comes along and says, we're just lucky, we're not special. Is it possible? Is it possible to challenge that within American democracy, that sense of providence? I mean, it's a kind of Tocquevillian question. Right. The, the, the lucky right. nation, oh. the nation of destiny. Who's going to tell the truth about this and get elected yes. and win? <laughs> Well, <laughs> and win in November. <laughs> right. Well, th it is a reflex. And, and thank you for raising it, David. It's, I devote a chapter in the book to this question of providentialism as a, as a source and as an expression of the deep American faith in meritocracy, which is tied to a certain providentialist faith. And writ large at the level of the nation, it's expressed in the slogan, the oft-heard slogan in American political rhetoric, America is great because America is good. In fact, in 2016, accepting the Democratic Party's nomination for president, Hillary Clinton said 
What Donald Trump doesn't understand is that America is great because America is good. And she was reiterating a hallowed phrase. It's become almost a mantra that has been used by American politicians of both parties with increasing frequency, interestingly enough, during this period of the last four decades, what I describe as the age of meritocracy, when meritocracy deepened its hold on assumptions about individual success, the politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, invoked this slogan about America being great because America is good to describe the success of the nation. When you ask, is it possible to challenge this, David, it's interesting. In a way, it was challenged, not directly, but by veering away from it, by desisting appeal to it from two directions. If we look at the populist protest that emerged against the governing public philosophy, meritocratic, credentialist, in American politics, it took two forms by 2016. On the left, there was the campaign of Bernie Sanders, who challenged Hillary Clinton. And on the right came Trump. And what's interesting is that despite their deep ideological differences, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump had this in common rhetorically. Unlike Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama before her and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump did not invoke the rhetoric of rising. They did not invoke the idea that the solution to inequality is individual mobility, upward mobility through higher education. That was not their mantra. Bernie Sanders wanted to deal with uh, inequality as a structural matter, not through individual mobility. And Donald Trump, his response to the condition of working people as a result of globalization was, he spoke the blunt language of winners and losers. He would make us collectively winners again. But he lacked the moralism in large part because he doesn't think or act in terms of, of morality. He didn't invoke the moralism that America is great because America is good. He didn't speak the language that those who work hard and play by the rules deserve to rise as far as their effort and talent will take them, this bipartisan slogan of the meritocratic age. So in their different ways, both Bernie Sanders and Trump desisted from this slogan, did not invoke this slogan about America being great because America is good. And in Trump's case, it was a more kind of coarse, hard-edged reassertion or promised reassertion of American power and greatness, quite apart from any notion of goodness. And he had no time for human rights rhetoric or any of that. It had nothing to do with goodness, just greatness in pure power terms. I did notice, I should add as a postscript, that in the run-up to this election, there was a video, a slick video prepared. It was not in Trump's own words, but by his campaign that ran, introducing him at the Republican convention. 
And in this gauzy, slickly produced video of how America has become great during the years of Donald Trump, the slogan came back. And the announcer, the voice off camera, not Donald Trump, said America is great because America is good. But these are not words that come quickly to the lips of Donald Trump. It's greatness detached from, divorced from, providential goodness. Now, that may not be a promising basis for reconsidering this providentialist conceit, if you're suggesting it's that. But I do think that the populist protest against the prevailing terms of public discourse do step away from this. Helen, I'm going to give you the last question in a second, but it, I mean, as you speak there, Mike, it does make me think the huge gap that still exists between a politician who, who does challenge it, but it seems to me that what Trump is essentially saying, not his voiceover people himself, is America is great because America is tough. I mean, that seems to be his. Yes. And that is yes. hugely different from America is great because America is lucky. And I know luck comes yeah. in different ways, but that last yes. line, that's a really tough sell in a democracy. Um, but Helen, you, you, you right. have the last well, question on this and then Michael can sum up. Well, I was, yeah. I, I find what you say really interesting. And I thought that chapter was absolutely fascinating because in one sense, what I drew out of it was, look, this stuff runs so deep in the United States. It's so there in the religious history of the United States and the American psyche that's come out of it. And the, the wells from which the politicians who speak the language of meritocracy and credentialism are speaking to run so deep, including, I would say, in its very strong religious formation. I mean, I thought there was something, you know, very Calvinist about Hillary Clinton's deplorables, the irredeemable deplorables remark back in 2016. And I, I like the part because I'm very keen on the book of Ecclesiastes too, where you sort of quote from that and call it the the ethic of fortune. But as I was reading it, I was recalling that the book by um, Thomas Wolfe, isn't it called You Can't Go Home Again? which seems to me a sort of a quintessential uh, American novel about the idea of America. And the end of it, as I recall, is a kind of not tirade because it sort of says Ecclesiastes is a brilliant meditation, but it's basically saying this isn't the American way. We can't be American and believe that tragic view of life. And it seems to me that any kind of politics that moves away from that has got to do something so fundamental to change the way in which many Americans understand themselves that it is pretty difficult and that it, although that I entirely agree with you that in their very different ways, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were articulating a pushback against that, you know, in 2016, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, that Sanders didn't win the Democratic nomination and that quite probably Trump won because of how very, very many people so intensely disliked Hillary Clinton and that a good deal of the pushback against the presidency, including, I would say, from people who voted for him ultimately has become because he, he he won't even pretend at the game that we're talking about of America is great because America is good. Well, you've given me a tall order as a final question, <laughs> Helen. Sum, sum that up. <laughs> so here's here's what I would say: if the only alternative moral and political vision to this providentialist one which I agree, and it runs very deep in American religious and now secular self-understanding. If the only alternative is to say, those of you who succeed, it's really down to luck. 
and we should have a more tragic view of the human circumstance. I agree with you, that would be a non-starter. But I think there is another way of offering a compelling, attractive set of moral and political ideals that could provide an alternative to the idea that our success is our due, the measure of our merit. First, appreciating the role of luck in life is not in itself a sufficient alternate ethic, but it can prompt a certain humility there, looking at those less fortunate than me there, but for the accident of fate or of the grace of God go I, and that can lead to a, a more generous kind of social solidarity and uh, politics of the common good. We are all in this together. That's not an alien or a foreign thought. We are all in this together. So luck can begin to chip away at the meritocratic hubris, but it can only provide a public ethic if it leads to a more expansive notion of the common good. We are all in this together and, and to work out the implications of that. But there's another dimension of an alternative public philosophy that I think and hope can replace the success ethic that has driven us apart. And that begins by acknowledging the deep source of the appeal of meritocracy itself, which consists in the idea that if chances are equal or could one day be made equal, then those who rose, those who succeeded, those who flourished, would be able to say to themselves, my success is my own doing. It was an exercise of my human agency, an exercise of freedom. This vision of human agency, I think, is what animates the meritocratic ideal, both in its inspiring dimension and also ultimately when it reveals its harsh side. So I think what we have to offer instead is not luck alone, but an alternative account of what it means to be free. That freedom does not consist in the image of being self-made and self-sufficient. That's the idea of human agency that is so alluring in the meritocratic ideal. The idea of the human self as self-made and self-sufficient, ultimately, but instead to offer an alternative conception of freedom, a civic conception of freedom, that recognizes what everyone knows, at least with part of ourselves in moments, that really to, to be free is not to be self-made and self-sufficient, but to recognize our sense of indebtedness to, to the luck, to the good fortune, but also to the families, communities, traditions, countries that made our success possible, that helped us on our way, that gave meaning to our strivings and aspirations, that provide the source of recognition that everyone seeks in a decent society 
So a politics of the common good is not a politics that turns its back on individual freedom, but rather one that recasts our understanding of freedom to connect it with the sense in which we share a common life and that we enjoy what success we have partly through seeing ourselves in the recognition of our fellow citizens for the contributions we are able to make to the common good. As I'm sure you can tell from that conversation, Michael Sandel's book is definitely worth reading. Its full title is The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good? We will tweet the link and include it in our show notes to the episode we recorded with Esther Duflo, the Nobel Prize winning economist, which touches on some of the same themes too. Next week, we are starting our focus on the US presidential election. We're going to be talking with Gary Gerstle about some of the historical precedents for one-term presidencies, if this is a one-term presidency, and we're going to be reflecting on what might or might not happen in the first presidential debate. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Perfect. (laughs) That is a good way to end. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.